Hello and welcome to Malicious Life. In the previous episode, we discussed the roots of the ransomware phenomena. Malicious software that prevents the user from accessing the files on their computer and demands ransom in order to release those files. We also discussed the two big challenges cybercriminals face, devising effective encryption that is hard to crack and figuring out a monetization strategy that keeps the criminal anonymous and doesn't allow the victim to cancel the payment or get a refund. In September 2013, a new ransomware was discovered named CryptoLocker. CryptoLocker would seek out a specific type of files, for example, Excel and Word files, pictures and videos, encrypt them, and then pop up a threatening message on the computer's screen. Pay $300 or all of your files will be deleted forever. A timer at the corner of the screen would start counting down 72 hours. Now, information security experts had already encountered ransomware in the years prior to CryptoLocker, so the threat it presented to the users wasn't new. What was new was one of the payment options that the ransomware offered its victims, Bitcoin. Bitcoin, first created in 2009, is a virtual cryptographic currency. That means it is a currency that exists only in the virtual world and is based on encryption algorithms. Bitcoin has a few fascinating characteristics that differentiate it from traditional currencies, such as the dollar and the euro, which are also usable online. But the characteristic most relevant to us is that Bitcoin, among all other recognizable currencies, is the closest thing to cash. Yossi Nahal, Chief Visionary Officer at CyberReason, explains. The concept of privacy and the concept of anonymity uh, in the internet is, I think, a very fundamental thing for a lot of people you know, from the old school. Uh, people who consider the internet to be a place where you know, absolute freedom can be practiced, absolute freedom of expression... Uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that they you know, were intended or support these, these criminal activities, but they make them feasible. The, the idea behind cryptocurrency is the same. Uh, it comes from the same, I don't know, somewhat anarchist idea that, I mean, I don't know if money is necessarily an anarchistic concept, but it comes from this idea that, uh, you know, no government should control this thing, that, that there needs to be a thing where while the transaction history is fully traceable, the actual people using this money are not traceable. So kind of like the ultimate version of like cash money um, that can be used anywhere in the same sense that you shouldn't know who I'm talking to uh, or what it is that I'm trying to, to look for online. And here is Uri Sternfeld, a senior investigator at CyberReason and expert on ransomware. The reason for that is simple. Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a phenomenon, not as a, uh, the bit currency itself. I mean, there are tons of other uh, virtual currencies which have no uh, central authority. But the idea of Bitcoin, which was arguably the first, is that it's untraceable and irrevocable. You can't cancel it after you pay. It's simply not possible. It's by design. And unlike credit cards, which have a central authority, which can cancel cards, and they even have insurance against uh, stolen cards because thousands of uh, credit cards are still being stolen every day. Bitcoin is pure money that is being transferred to criminals, and it can be taken back or traced. Ransom is just easy. It's, 
I mean, like any kind of ransom. I mean, ransom is, is not a very sophisticated crime, you know. Abducting someone and then asking their family for money is not a particularly sophisticated crime. It doesn't require too much planning. It's easy to execute. It's, it's maybe dangerous, like a lot of criminal activity. But orchestrated in the right way, it's or you know, again, the wrong way, the odds of being captured are relatively small. Now, the real reason that ransomware became possible is cryptocurrency. I think without cryptocurrency, there wouldn't be ransomware because the ability to extract payment for ransom would be impossible in, in, an, in an untraceable way. But because cryptocurrency is untraceable uh, and because you can transfer it uh, without requiring you know, banking services, a bank account, or you know, anybody can set up a Bitcoin wallet, it takes seconds, it enabled the payment side of things. Uh, again, like as it is with any system, uh, payment processing is a is a difficult problem, and this this makes for you know a crime without consequence. So, CryptoLocker is arguably the first modern ransomware. It appeared out of nowhere. It was the first one to uh, combine the old idea of ransomware with the new idea of Bitcoin. So, in 2013 was the year that marked the rise of ransomware. According to different estimations, CryptoLocker overtook roughly a quarter of a million computers around the world and earned its creators an estimated 27 million US dollars worth of Bitcoins, making it the most successful ransomware in history up to that point. Bitcoin allowed the criminals to solve the problem of monetizing their ransomware. The file encryption algorithm was impeccable and uncrackable. Spreading the malware via email was also highly effective. The emails containing the infected files were designed in a way that would appear as though they came from clients of the recipient or from respectable establishments. It was obvious that whoever created CryptoLocker knew what they were doing. CryptoLocker was clearly created by professionals and not by teens looking to have some fun with malware in their spare time or criminals looking for quick cash. Uri Sternfeld. At first, it was a very minor threat. You can measure the effect of ransomware in two ways, the amount of uh, money they're making and the amount of damage they cause. And the amount of damage they cause is usually tenfold because, first of all, not everybody pays. Some uh, decide to uh, use backups and uh, some because of principle, some because they have a valid backup. And even if they do pay, then it still causes damage. I mean, uh, lost uh, revenue, lost reputation, lost business time. Naturally, CryptoLocker's great success and the huge damage it created attracted the attention of information security companies and law enforcement agencies. Ransomware itself didn't contain any hints regarding the identity of its creators, but investigators did have a lead in the way that the ransomware was distributed online. The name Slavic has been known to information security people since 2006 at the least. Slavic is the nickname of a programmer who created one of the most infamous malware, Zeus. This was a very sophisticated and stealthy malware used mainly for breaking into bank accounts. Slavik and a gang of Russian-Ukrainian criminals who were cooperating with him broke into the accounts of dozens of companies and organizations and stole tens of millions of dollars from them. 
In 2010, the FBI was able to put its hands on some of Slavic's partners in crime and stop the gang's criminal activity in the US, but Slavic himself was never caught and his true identity remained a mystery. Slavic went into hiding. In underworld forms, he declared his retirement and even sold the code to Zeus to another criminal. No one heard anything from him for some months, but his quote-unquote retirement turned out to be a bluff. In 2011, a new malware was discovered, which was a better, more sophisticated version of Zeus. The name given to it was Game Over Zeus. Like Zeus, Game Over Zeus has taken over millions of computers throughout the world and turned them into zombies in a botnet. It was clear that Slavik did not only not retire, but also improved his methods. A new wave of hacking hit big companies and financial organizations with damages estimated at tens of millions of dollars. In 2013, a Dutch company called Fox IT was able to lay its hands on a server that was used by Slavic, and the information extracted from it provided the investigators with a rare insight into the evil empire that this slippery criminal established. The gang Slavic gathered around himself contained 50 seasoned and experienced cybercriminals, each of them specializing in a different aspect of the trade. Some were responsible for hacking into bank accounts, others managed the transfer of funds throughout the world, and others the technical aspects of running the Game Over Zeus botnet. The gang, led by Slavik of course, called itself the Business Club and operated accordingly. Transcriptions of the chats conducted between the gang members exposed on the server showed that the criminal activity was run in an organized and professional manner, just like a regular company. Gaining control of the server produced one more meaningful item, an email address used by Slavic. The Fox IT investigators scanned social media and found a profile attached to this address. It was the missing piece of the puzzle which exposed Slavik's true identity. Slavik's real name was Yevgeny Mikhailovich Bogachev, a man in his mid-30s living in Anapa, a tourist town by the Black Sea. The pictures he posted to his profile, standing next to a fleet of luxury cars and sailing on yachts, hint that his criminal career paid off. There was also some evidence to suggest that Bogachev was working for the Russian intelligence service, at least part-time. But it would appear that Bogachev's intelligence career and the money he earned from hacking into so many bank accounts were not enough for him. When CryptoLocker appeared in 2013, investigators discovered a direct connection between it and Bogachev's organization. CryptoLocker was distributed in two ways simultaneously. One was through malicious mail attachment posing as innocent PDF files. The other was through Game Over Zeus, which installed the ransomware on computers it infected. Since Game Over Zeus was under the complete control of Bogachev and his men, it was clear that Bogachev was also responsible for the new ransomware, or at least was working in full cooperation with its creators. This fact created a rare opportunity for law enforcement authorities. 
If they could take over the game over Zeus botnet and bring down Bogachev's business club, they could also take down CryptoLocker. The FBI began planning an operation to take down Game Over Zeus botnet, an operation nicknamed Operation Toval. No one doubted that this would be one of the most complex and difficult cyber operations ever attempted. The business club's tentacles spanned almost every corner of the globe. The crime organization's nerve center was located in Russia and Ukraine, but it had servers and cooperatives in the USA and many European countries, not to mention the millions of computers all over the world infected with Game Over Zeus. FBI agents created ties and collaborations with organizations, law enforcement agencies and information security companies all over the world. Europol, UK National Crime Agency, Dell, Microsoft, Symantec, the Australian Federal Police and many others. The goal was clear, to simultaneously strike Bogachev's organization on multiple fronts and to knock it out before it had a chance to recover. The additional challenge in Operation Tovar was a technological one, taking control of the millions of computers infected with Game Over Zeus. The goal here was to wrestle control over the botnet from Bogachev's hands, something that would practically sever the tentacles of this crime octopus. It was no simple matter. A special team from Microsoft tried to take over Game Over Zeus in 2012 and failed. Several American and German information security experts tried again in the beginning of 2013. They were able to take command of 99% of the computers on the botnet, but the remaining 1% was all Bogachev needed in order to foil their plans and take back control of the entire network. What made Game Over Zeus botnet so resistant to attempts by law enforcement agencies to overtake it. The reason had to do with the clever control scheme that Bogachev created for his botnet. In other, less sophisticated botnets, communication with the computers was made through one server or a small number of servers called CNC or Command and Control Servers. A CNC server is like an orchestra conductor responsible for coordination between the various players. The botmaster gives his order to the command and control server, which in turn relays them to the rest of the bots. Working with a single command and control server, or a small amount of them, instead of the hundreds of thousands of individual bots, makes the botmaster's life easier and allows him to manage the network efficiently. Having said that, the command and control server also poses a great risk for the botmaster by being a single point of failure. If law enforcement authorities manage to get their hands on the server, they can, in fact, prevent the botmaster from accessing his own botnet. Bogachev was aware of this potential single point of failure and designed Game Over Zeus botnet accordingly. First, the computers in Game Over Zeus botnet were able to communicate and receive commands not only from the command and control server, but also from other bots inside the network, a configuration called a peer-to-peer -peer network. 
To continue the last analogy, this kind of communication allows the members of the orchestra to communicate and play together with a certain level of coordination in case the conductor was unavailable. This ability gave the botmaster an alternative channel of communication with infected computers in case the command and control server was not under his control. This mechanism was the reason why the second takeover attempt failed. Despite the fact that 99% of the computers on Bogachev's network were under the control of the investigators, he used the communication between the bots themselves to quote-unquote push an updated version of Game Over Zeus into the infected computers, which brought control back to him. Malicious Life is brought to you in collaboration with Cyberism. Cyberism allows you to gain the upper hand by taking an entirely new approach to cybersecurity, stopping fireless malware, lateral movement, and even zero days. Connect the dots and gain unmatched visibility with Cyberism. Learn more at cyberism.com. Despite the advantages of peer-to-peer communication, it cannot completely replace the role of command and control servers. The direct control that command and control servers provide is much more efficient and practical than the indirect control that peer-to-peer communication enables. Bogachev still required a command and control server, but without it being a potential single point of failure for the entire network. For that reason, Bogachev implemented in Game Over Zeus a clever idea called DGA, or Domain Generation Algorithm. The DGA mechanism generates a new URL address every few minutes, to which the infected computers go to when searching for the command and control server. The infected computer reaches out to the command and control server via that URL, and if it doesn't get a response, it waits a few minutes and then tries again with the newly generated address. Think of an orchestra whose conductor disappears, and all the players, in unison, lift their gaze to the crowd, to one specific seat, where an alternative conductor rises to his feet and begins conducting the score. If the alternative conductor isn't there, the players divert their eyes to a different seat and then to a different one and so on until they find a willing conductor. Uri Sternfeld explains the advantages that the DGA technology gives the botmaster in his battle against law enforcement authorities attempting to take over his botnet. The uh, Zeus and CryptoLocker use, the, uh, I think, 1,000 domains per day based on the current date. So... If you have the same algorithm as the malware, then each day you only have to register a single domain out of the thousand and you'll be able to communicate with all the tools out there. And the next day you simply have to register a new domain. And if one of them is taken down, then you don't really care. You simply register another and the domain names are, since they're randomly generated, they're usually, uh, they cost very little and they're always available. So uh, like with uh, $10 per domain, you can probably uh, get an entire operation going with less than $4,000 per year, which is nothing. And it's very difficult to mitigate because if you think about it, 
not only is it uh, difficult to protect against hundreds of thousands of domains, I mean, CryptoLocker alone generated more than 350,000 domains per year, and most firewall appliances aren't really meant to be able to work with so many domains. The FBI was aware of this ability that Game Over Zeus had. The solution found by the investigators may have been the simplest one possible. They bought every ticket available to the concert. What the FBI decided to do was they reversed the algorithm of CryptoLocker and they relied on the current date and they pre-generated 180,000 domains for the next six months. And they went to the Supreme Court of the United States and they demanded that it instructs the relevant uh, internet companies to pre-register these domains and sort of divert all traffic to a specially crafted uh, sinkhole that the FBI set in order to uh, know who the victims are. It was a really long and arduous effort. You can actually get all the forms they submitted to the Supreme Court online, including the PDF appendix of the 180,000 domains, which I can imagine they printed and someone used a wheelbarrow to uh, bring them to the judge who went over them one by one. After many months of hard work and preparation, all forces were ready for deployment. A moment of anxiety occurred when McAfee, one of the partners in this effort, accidentally posted ahead of time on its blog about the operation against Game Over Zeus. The post was deleted swiftly, but there was the fear that Bogachev and his partners may have found out about the operation and would be able to defend against it. Luckily, this wasn't the case. In early June 2014, authorities in several countries simultaneously seized servers owned by Bogachev's gang, and at the same time, information security experts took control of Game Over Zeus bots. Yevgeny Bogachev, apparently from his home by the Black Sea, tried to fight the investigators and to maintain his control over the botnet, but lost. Operation Tovar, with its magnitude of international collaborations and the immense amount of resources invested in it, was too big for him. In his distress, he attempted to at least protect his biggest asset the database containing the encryption keys of all of the computers infected with CryptoLocker, the secret keys that would allow him to continue to extort ransoms from his victims. He tried extracting the database from one of the servers before the authorities could lay their hands on it, but he failed there too. Information security experts identified the attempt to extract the database from the server and intercepted it. Game Over Zeus and CryptoLocker were defeated. Bogachev's business club took a bad hit, and information security experts created a website where CryptoLocker victims could find their encryption key from the seized database and free their locked files. Yevgeny Bogachev is still walking around free in Russia, but the FBI has gathered enough evidence against him to post a $3 million bounty on his head as reward for whoever turns in this elusive criminal. But Operation Tovar, as successful as it was, didn't deter the criminals. Quite the contrary. CryptoLocker's success marked the right way, 
as far as criminals are concerned, for a successful implementation of a ransomware campaign. Eventually, they managed to apprehend uh, people behind CryptoLocker, and they confiscated their servers, and they decrypted files, and everyone was happy, and the problem was solved forever, except it wasn't, because I think a few weeks later, new and improved ransomware appeared, uh, written by other people. I think it was called CryptoWall. Today, CryptoWall is already extinct because the evolution is so quick. But there are other big names around the world, uh, Cerber, Loki, TeslaCrypt, uh, and my guess is that by the end of 2017, there will be others. So uh, you can think about it like a head of a hydra. Uh, you cut one off, but uh, two sprout in its stead. So obviously the FBI's solution is not efficient enough. Uh, I mean, the amount of effort they invested in taking down a single criminal organization is mind-boggling, and they required cooperation all around the world. Ever since CryptoLocker, there has been a dramatic increase in the number of ransomwares. In fact, in the third quarter of 2016 alone, the number of ransomware was 11 times greater compared to even the first quarter of the same year. The ransomwares themselves became more sophisticated. The encryption improved, and they operated on a wider range of platforms, including mobile. Just like in the cases of spam and DDoS, here too a flourishing criminal industry was developed. It's sort of like a business, an affiliate program. It's called a ransomware as a service, where you can participate and you either supply the ransomware that you're using and uh, get it uh, obfuscated each and every time, or you don't write any code at all. You're just a, a distributor. For example, uh, you are a criminal in a remote country and you have access to uh, methods of uh, distribution. For example, I don't know, maybe you control a local ISP or uh, other methods. So you approach the people who actually wrote the ransomware and you agree to distribute their ransomware in exchange to um, dividing the loot. That really streamlines the operation. I mean, it's sort of a, a, an industry now. Each uh, part focuses on what they're good at. Uh, for example, if I can write a very solid encryption program, it doesn't uh, necessarily mean that I can effectively distribute it around the world. Maybe I need someone with uh, that skill. Israel Barak is Chief Information Officer at Cyber Reason and has spent the last few years studying cyber criminal organizations. Israel claims that when it comes to talent, crime organizations have a wide array of candidates to choose from. So one of the trends that we're seeing in sophisticated cyber crime uh, organizations is the migration of talent, of you know, human talent from nation state actors in certain geographies into cyber crime organizations. So especially when you look at geographies like Russia, Eastern Europe, and China, you see situations where cyber crime organizations actually ramp up their activities, ramp up the sophistication of their operation based on talent that they acquire from nation state organizations. At the end of the day, they're basically able to pay a lot more to those guys than their government employers, right? It can sometimes be 10 or 100 times more than those guys make with those government employers when they move to work for those crime organizations. So the cyber crook is not uh, the, the kind of a dumb gangster type we, we used to deal with maybe in the early phases of cybercrime, 
but more of a high-tech developer slash engineer who's it's a job. It's, it's his job to do that. Exactly. And in recent years, you can see more and more nation-state hacking activity patterns adopted by cybercrime operations. And that's not a coincidence. This happens because the people that established and worked by those standards and operation procedures are actually now working for those cybercrime operations. And we'll continue to see this talent transition and migration because those government nation-state actors are nurturing and building more and more of those people to support their ongoing and scale-up of, of their own operation. But at the end of the day, those people leave their jobs working for the government. And a lot of them end up working, especially in certain geographies, working for cybercrime operations. It's extremely tempting. And in many cases, the cybercrime isn't being presented as you're going to do cybercrime. They're going to work in an R&D shop. Or they're going to work in some sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting way in which they pos initially position or pitch this to those people. But those people don't necessarily migrate based on the understanding that they're going to do organized cybercrime. But it becomes clearer and clearer as they get more and more involved in the operation. But again, the financial compensation is something that, you know, that draws them into it. What does the future hold for ransomware? The main trend in recent years is a shift from attacks against ordinary users to attacking organizations, from hospitals to commercial businesses. Uri Sternfeld believes this trend will continue. So far, we talked about mainly about B2C, uh, about the regular people which are being affected by ransomware, and usually they're uh, the least protected, they don't have backups, but the ransom amount is also pretty small. I mean, uh, it ranges from $100 to $1,000 in Bitcoin. And the reason for that is simple, because the value is mainly sentimental, and, you know, while I might be uh, willing to pay $200 for uh, my entire uh, picture collection, $20,000 is pretty, is, is probably too much. I mean, it, I'm it not, doesn't, it's not worth that much. Yeah, I'm not that photogenic. For businesses, the consideration is different. First of all, it's a decision based on profit and loss. If they have backup, then they have to consider how much is lost. How much, uh, I mean, if you do the backup uh, each day, then you're probably okay. If you do it each week, then you basically lost all the work done in that week. Is that worth more or less to you than the ransom? So, of course, uh, that's the way of thinking for businesses. And the way of thinking for ransomware authors who attack businesses is, of course, they can charge a much larger amount, first of all, because uh, the businesses have much more to lose. Second, because they usually infect many different machines inside the organization. Uh, if they manage to reach the file server or the database server, then they're golden. And it got to the point that some organizations, they started accumulating Bitcoin for the inevitable case uh, when they're infected with ransomware. So that when they're infected, they can immediately pay the ransom and get everything going uh, as fast as they can. Other than the business environment, it is likely that in the coming years we will see ransomwares invading new technological domains, such as wearable technology and the Internet of Things. Stephen Cobb from ESET, who we've met in previous episodes, sketches for us a pretty scary scenario named Jackware, 
which once would have been seemed as though it's taken out of a science fiction film, but today doesn't seem so far-fetched. Jackware is applying ransomware techniques to the Internet of Things. And the specific example that came to mind uh, after the, uh, the very public hacking of a Jeep uh, that was done by Wired magazine was what if you applied ransomware to a vehicle? You go out in the morning, you, you click on your, uh, your remote opener to open the car, and you get a text message on your phone saying your car has been locked unless you pay 70 Bitcoin. You can't have use of your car. And then the, the step beyond that is you get in a self-driving car and you tell it where you want to go, and it comes up with a ransomware message saying, well, I'm sorry, but unless you pay so many Bitcoin, I'm not going to take you where you're going. Uh, and, and the nightmare, nightmare scenario is you put your children in a self-driving car and tell it to go to music lessons, and it drives off with your kids, and it's been taken over by ransomware. Uh, yeah, that's a very frightening future <laughs> that you just described there as a father of three kids. Uh, to put this in context... I, I've been at meetings in Washington uh, the last few days, and I, I won't even say which agency this official was from, but somebody on stage said, maybe we're not going to wake up to this problem and, until your self-driving car gets driven off the road by malicious code. So people are thinking about this possibility, and, and really I want to use it, uh, and, and just to be clear, I know there are a lot of people in the automotive industry really, really working hard on this problem. And one of the saving graces, maybe of the new technology in the vehicle space, is that you have new generation vehicle companies. So if you look at something like a Tesla, that thing's designed to be securely coded and securely updated from the get-go. Traditional cars where we're, we're bolting on digital systems have, have more issues around patching and things like that. I, I don't want to scare people unnecessarily. There, there are serious, serious computer scientists working on making digital automotive systems secure. But you know, the future we face if we don't do that is kind of scary. In the past six episodes, we've attempted to sketch out for you a fuller picture of the processes and changes that occurred in the world of cybercrime in the past 40 years. Computer viruses began as semi-mythological monsters whose very existence was doubted even by computer experts. But with the premiation of the personal computer into our personal and business lives, they have become part of our everyday reality. The first virus writers were, almost every last one, bored youngsters who used computer viruses as a virtual alternative to graffiti. Some wrote viruses for fun, some for the challenge, and others, like the Dark Avenger from Bulgaria, used it to channel their angers and frustrations. The rise of the internet morphed viruses from toys to tools. In a matter of just a few years, criminals and crime organization replaced the bored youngsters and the world of computerized crime became more diverse and complex, but at the same time more organized. The burden of developing malwares, distributing and operating them was now shared by a larger amount of people, each an expert in his field and offering his talents and services for money. 
computerized crime became a commodity. Ransomware is the current peak of this professionalization process in computerized crime, but it certainly isn't its end. Like any other type of technological crime, ransomware will probably become less popular as soon as security companies and users learn naturally to better deal with this threat. When that happens, it is likely that we will discover a new threat beyond the horizon. This concludes the first season of Malicious Life. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us for the upcoming seasons of Malicious Life, where we will discuss many other aspects of computerized crime, starting from cyber warfare waged by nation-states and the threat that it poses to the stability of the modern world, all the way to the tools and technologies used by security experts in order to combat these new threats. Visit malicious.life to subscribe to our podcast. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and we'll send you a Malicious Life t-shirt. That's malicious.life. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.